Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for all those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum Pod comes to you from Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. And if you want to study with some of the leading academics in their fields, I'd strongly recommend you come and study with us here. We have a fantastic range of short courses and degrees in different fields of public policy available for you. You can find out more information and how to apply at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. And I'm very pleased to welcome our podcasting all-star professor, Quentin Grafton, as my co-host today. Hi, Quentin. Hi, Julia. Very happy to be here. Great to have you, Quentin. Quentin is a professor here at Crawford School and also the UNESCO Chair in Water Economics and Transboundary River Governance and, of course, our Editor-in-Chief for Policy Forum. So, Quentin, at this point, I would normally ask you what has caught your attention in the wide world of public policy. But this time, it's actually you who has been all over the news in the past week for a piece with John Williams on the lack of effective policy responses to Australia's water emergency. Quentin, what have the responses to that piece been like? I've been following a bit on social media and there's been a lot of responses to this. Yes, Julia, a lot of gangbusters, I think, in terms of the piece. Uh, and I think pretty much overwhelmingly positive. But of course, social media has its own uh, silos. And As it so goes. Perhaps yeah. I'm in one of those silos. But the the piece was really uh, about uh, calling it as it is. And that's uh, calling what we're experiencing right now in southeastern Australia a water emergency. And by that, I mean, we've got a real problem, a real crisis, and we need to act. And uh, by contrast, there's this rhetoric out there by, by some water ministers, namely that because it's a drought, nothing can be done until it rains or we're going to build dams. And so the point was really, no, that's not good enough. There are a whole series of options we need to put on the table, call it what it is, which is an emergency, and actually uh, expect our leaders to act. And, and that, that was essentially it and backed up with uh, an academic piece of work that was in, published in the International Journal of Water Resources Development. Uh, did people agree with you mostly on that? As I said, overwhelmingly they did, but uh, I'm sure people uh, do disagree with me and I'm, I'm, I'm happy for people to disagree with me, but I'm very happy to debate with them as well. And, uh, and in fact, uh, I'm always willing to do that. So some people who disagree uh, and they've come to me and said that, then I said, well, let's, let's have a debate. You know, I'm happy you be on one side, I'll be on the other, and we can debate the facts and the evidence. I'm very comfortable with that. That's, that's the bread and butter for me. So very happy to do that if someone disagrees. And we can have a, a good, healthy debate. 
As Quentin said, we are very happy to get in conversation with you and discuss with you. And you can reach us on Twitter, we, we, where we are at Apps Policy Forum. You can shoot us an email, of course, podcast at policyforum.net. And if you're on Facebook, I strongly recommend you join us in our Policy Forum pod group there. This is the best way to get in touch with us directly and have conversations with our pod team members about what you thought of the latest episode, which topics we should cover on our podcast and what we could improve. Now, in the past six months, the world has seen many protests from Hong Kong to Lebanon to Chile. People have taken to the streets to make their voices heard by their governments with mixed results. Whilst undoubtedly less violent, Australia recently had its own series of protests with a particular focus on the government's response to climate change. This week, Prime Minister Scott Morrison hit back against environmental protesters warning of a new breed of radical activism that was, in inverted commas, apocalyptic in tone. He also promised to outlaw boycott campaigns that could hurt the mining industry. And at the same time, a 2018 study from the Australian Museum of Democracy showed that trust in government plummeted from 86% in 2007 to 41% in 2018. In the survey, researchers also found that Australians imagined their democracy in a way that demonstrates support for participatory politics. Yet the Morrison government is talking about shutting down protesters who deny the liberties in, of Australians, in inverted commas, and encourage corporations to listen to the quiet shareholders. With these trends unfolding in Australia, we want to ask, how can we make sure that the voice of citizens is heard in policy? And to discuss this important topic, we have a great panel. We've got an economist, a political marketing and leadership expert, and a citizen engagement expert. Quentin, can you tell us a bit more about our panelists? Well, it sounds like we've got the dream team here, Julia. We do. So let's, uh, let me introduce them one by one. So first of all is Peter Martin. He is well known to a lot of Australians and he's a visiting fellow here at the Crawford School and he's the business and economy editor of The Conversation. The second panelist is Professor Jennifer Lees Marshmont. She is also a visiting fellow here at the Crawford School and an associate professor at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And the third, but by no means the least uh, in the context of our panel, is Professor Carolyn Hendricks. So she is an associate professor here at the Crawford School at the Australian National University and has been a, is an appointed member of the New Democracy Foundation's Research Committee. Fantastic panel. They've got a real set of expertise for us. It's indeed a fantastic panel. So let's see what they had to say. Welcome, Jennifer. Hello. Welcome, Carolyn. Hi. And welcome, Peter. Good day. Now, worldwide, particularly in Western democracies, trust in government is falling and we're seeing people engage in protests, for example, targeting government's climate change policies. And so clearly people are looking for ways to engage with government. Beyond the ballot box, how can citizens go about influencing policy in Australia? If I can start with you, Peter. One-on-one. -on -one. Um, and by one-on-one, -on -one, I actually mean with politicians. I see this happen. Um, you can't do it about something that's like against their party's policy, right? It's not going to work. But um, particularly with senators, if you can make friends with a senator 
enormous things can happen. I see it in Senate, Senate Estimates Committee. To give you a very quick example, um, the Secretary of the Treasury, every time he appears for years, he is asked, um, now what about the women in your executive service ranks? So what's your percentage up to now? And so he's been prepared. And that's because someone got in that senator's ear. So that's a tip. Not too bad. Carolyn, what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's um, there's so many ways people can get engaged and influence public policy. There's lots of structured formal ways, which I'd call sort of invited publics. And local, state, federal government have enormous number of processes around where people can either sit on boards or get invited to participate. Um, then there's, there's an inquiry every minute, really, pretty much, at the and public hearings attached to those. So those uh, processes, um, yeah, can leave people pretty fatigued because they often may not lead to direct change. So then people may t- take to the streets. They might protest. They might advocate. They might lobby. So these are sort of insisted publics that kind of can push push in. But then there's a whole range of publics that are forming online as well, which I kind of label network publics. And then there's actually an emerging kind of publics that's sort of things that I've been looking at, which are what I'm calling doing publics. There's a lot of citizens actually now going out and just solving public problems on their own terms, creating problems for public policy regulators. But take, for example, in the energy space, there's a lot of community energy projects. There's a lot of social service projects where citizens are distrustful and fed up with the capacity of the state um, to, to address some of these complex issues. And so they're forming initiatives, enterprises to work often with corporations to solve public problems. Jennifer, what would you like to add? Well, I think my main comment would be to think about what you're going to ask for when you're following all those different ways that Carolyn overviewed. I mean, Carolyn has already given you a really full list of those things. So what I'd say is then building on that is be cautious what you ask for. So try and put yourself in the decision maker's shoes. Um, Avoid asking for shopping lists and really massive high public cost demands because they're things that the politicians may not be able to give you because ultimately the public won't wear it. So stay realistic. Stay realistic. I also offer suggest solutions, constructive suggestions, rather than just moan about the problems. Of course, the problems are why you're getting involved in the first place, but try and offer different options, things that might be doable for the politicians. That's if you want to get to cut through to um, the political world. And ultimately, they are the decision makers elected by us, so they're the ones you need to think about too. One aspect that Carolyn has mentioned is protests as a form of citizen trying to citizens trying to engage. And we've seen growing unhappiness with governments in many countries around the globe. If you take a quick sweep, you can look at Lebanon with the taxes on WhatsApp messages. You can look at Hong Kong, of course, something that's very prevalent in our region here as a reaction to the controversial extradition bill. And um, many governments are trying to then crack down on protesters. And whilst these are quite extreme examples, we've also recently seen a surge in protests in Australia responding to the government's inaction on climate change. Just this week, Scott Morrison condemned these protests and said that he'd seek to apply penalties to those targeting businesses who provide services to the resources industry. Carolyn, what kind of message does this send to the public? It's a kind of confused message uh, because on the one hand, he's saying actually that these activists or protesters are making a difference. But on the other hand, he's saying he, he labelled it economic sabotage so that it's 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 not out there on the street protesting, I think, that he's taking issue with. He's taking issue with um, the way in which different groups have been influencing 
this is his his sort of way of framing it, influencing those that serve and work for um, the, those in, in carbon-intensive industries. Um, I guess the, the confused message for me is that a lot of the decisions of these banks and in, insurance companies that, that he feels are being kind of pushed out um, and not being able to fund other projects is that there's a, there's a broader kind of risk uh, conversation and shareholder democracy, you could argue, that's pushing this dynamic and not just the protesters and the activists. So it sends a message that there is, there's lots of influence in the, in these industries. Um, but it's a pretty simplistic framing to think that it's just the activists that are causing the changes in the behavior of these, of this sector. There's obviously drivers and causes that are leading to these protests. So the question is, is how to respond. And so let's just follow up on the business side and then we'll come back to these ideas. So, so Peter, does, does business need this protection? Or do they need to have these, these laws that are being proposed put through to, to protect them from people who are agitating and protesting and getting in the way of their, their business? It's not going to work. Uh, do they need it? I don't know. Let me tell you a story about the Australian National University, which in uh, 2014 decided, after this this sort of uh, pressure, after representations, decided that it wasn't going to invest in fossil fuels. The ANU naturally has uh, a lot of money that uh, it invests to, to live off the income. And it was attacked by all sorts of ministers. Uh, uh, the, the treasurer, Scott Morrison, where's he now? Uh, Jamie Briggs, who was uh, for a minute the infrastructure minister who had an unfortunate fall from grace later on, where, where, where's he now? And they, they, they said, this is outrageous. The ANU is not serving its best interests. Now, the, the main resource company the ANU uh, owned shares in was Santos, uh, Gas Explorer. Its shares at the time were $10. They collapsed to $3.38 shortly thereafter. The ANU was made very much better off. They've since recovered a bit, but they're nothing like $10. Um, the ANU was made very better off by following what turned out to be good advice uh, for, the, for the right reasons, which was that fossil fuels did not have a particular future. So it's not necessarily in the interests of companies uh, to be protected, but it's also not practical. You can't stop shareholders uh, deciding whether to buy or sell shares. You can't stop them speaking at meetings. I doubt whether the Prime Minister meant it seriously. And by that, I, I, I actually mean I doubt whether he thought it through. So can we go to you, Jennifer, because this is this, the politics of it and what Scott Morrison may or may not have intended and how he thought it through or his advisors. So what do, you, what do you think the political message and communications is coming here? You know, what underpins... Scott Morrison's actions in terms of those statements that he made? Well, I can only speculate, but um, based on my understanding of political marketing and decision-making in government, I think that there must be something coming up through his focus group research, market research, or um, feedback from the communities, the liberal strongholds, that there are people feeling that this this protest is going too far, that it's disruptive to mainstream economic businesses, and that it's therefore not fair because they're attacking people who may not have done anything wrong. But I'll have to be a bit careful with that um, for all the reasons we, you know, we've previously discussed, but also because when processes occur, it's because the mainstream ways aren't necessarily working. Or certainly if they end up being repeated over time, you know, the more that mainstream issues like how to deal with climate change are not actually properly solved by governments, then the more likely it is that 
political opinion on those issues won't go through the mainstream parties. They'll go through these protests or protest voting or, you know, more risky demonstrations because people feel like we just can't get heard. And climate change, you know, it's been on the agenda. You know, Greens have put it on the agenda for a long while now. And there's a real sense that no political party, Labour or Liberal or National or Labour in New Zealand is actually really acting on it properly. So simply tell people, telling people not to protest may not be the right way to go about reducing that protest, actually. it's a good point, Jennifer. So if we go back in history, we've got Mahatma Gandhi wanting independence and direct democracy in the context of India. Uh, we have Martin Luther King Jr. protesting uh, in the American South in terms of getting uh, voting rights for, for African-Americans. And uh, in fact, I think it's interesting to go back 50 years. Uh, apparently on the uh, 3rd of November, 1969, President Richard Nixon had his famous speech, The uh, Great Silent Majority. Mm. Same and, word, almost. <laughs> Quite well, Australian, silent majority. Silent majority. And indeed, uh, President Nixon used the term uh, forgotten Americans. So when he referred to forgotten Americans, he was referring to those Americans that had voted for him. Uh, and that who were not out there protesting. So it's a kind of an interesting, we've sort of gone back uh, 50 years in some sense in terms of thinking about how they, those 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 words and, and the protests. And so I get to your point, Jennifer, this issue of protest, protest because it's the Vietnam War, you're unhappy with that, protesting because you want independence, protesting because you want just basic human rights. So it's an interesting, an interesting dimension that uh, although we're in 2019, we can look to the past and see that there's a lot of um, – a lot of history. And uh, of course, ultimately, Martin Luther King was was made a hero of the United States. They named a, a national holiday after him. Yet uh, at the time, he was viewed as someone who was uh, against uh, the, the overall um, focus of the American government. But anyway, that's enough for me to talk. I, I think we get to this issue is, well, does it have the desired effect? Peter said that it won't. But but what about either you or Carolyn or you, Jennifer, in terms of – do you think this is going to have the desired effect from the perspective of the prime minister? His effect presumably is to stop protests. I presume that's the – This being the government intervention. That's inter correct, yes. Yeah, I mean I see it as a, it was largely rhetorical. I, I, I can't imagine how it would look in, in legislative terms. I can't imagine how they would then enforce it. Um, and I think it's – it would also probably receive a lot of backlash from the particular banking and insurance companies that he's trying to sort of encourage to to invest in these industries because they're making business choices based on not just shareholder feedback but also their own risk assessments and the global patterns. Um, and I think it would it would look bad for the government to sort of push these industries into a corner that they're not willing to invest in. So. Um, also, I mean, history tends to show that if you ignore protest or suppress protest, then it can often just increase and grow. So a better way to address it is to acknowledge it and say you're acting on it in some way, even if it's, you know, in a more mainstream way than the... the you're most. certainly acknowledging it. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, acknowledge its value or potential value. But the other thing is he may just be appealing to law and order liberals, voters, although he's just won the election, so does he need to worry about them too much? I don't know. I don't think he it's has an, an issue with, with activism and protest. In fact, he seems to say that's okay, but he has an issue with what he's calling economic sabotage, which he sort of describes right. as this under kind of current where we're, we're small businesses and intermediaries that work and serve uh, carbon-intensive industries are being hassled and uh, pressured by activist groups. So it's a kind of, I think he's taking issue with a kind of non-public 
kind of pressure um, that is applied to some of these industries um, and intermediaries. We do have weapons, by the way, we never had before. So in the past, you couldn't have organised um, a boycott of a certain company. There, there was no mechanism to do it, right? So mm. um, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, I think a more productive way would be to, to open a conversation up about how how can we assist those that are caught up in carbon intensive industries um, to transition, and and what can be the ways in which um, we can build employment opportunities off those, and have have public conversations around that rather than restrict, um, yeah, certain kinds of publics having an influence. Sort of a forward looking rather than reactive. Yes. So the jobs and growth agenda of this government, which was very clear in the in the last federal election. Yeah. So focusing in on that and delivering that. And um, bringing the people he's speaking that, on behalf of yeah, actually sure. into the conversation because it's sort of unclear from the rhetoric that he delivered in his speech um, who, who these groups or industries and affected intermediaries actually are. Like are they – is he actually speaking on behalf of them or is he trying to create a straw man in this, in this space? I think it's quite genuine. Um, I, I say this on the basis of my one conversation with him this year, which was about just that. And uh, uh, Mr. Morrison, who'd won the election, where did you get this idea of the quiet Australians? And he said, and I'm not the only person he told it to, uh, I'm sure, that um, he was at a barbecue around January and um, there were lots of families, sort of a picnic uh, on lawns. And, um, and he thought, these are the people who matter. Now, these are not people on Newstart. They are not refugees or, you know, applying for <laughs> refugees. They do not take part in protests. These are the people I represent. And the way he described it was like an epiphany, uh, which actually makes a lot of sense because, let's face it, uh, he was as about as surprised by anyone <laughs> that he got the job and then as surprised by anyone <laughs> probably that he actually won the election. So um, having – I think you can actually see everything he does through that, um, that prism. I think he does. And given that, you can say, oh, well, let's talk about, uh, you know, you can't do protests and you can't do boycotts. That's the sort of thing you'd say to represent those people having picnics on the lawn. Doesn't mean you'd actually do it. Doesn't mean you've sorted it through. It does mean you certainly wouldn't pay attention to protesters because um, in, in, in the sense of acting on what they said, because th those people don't take part in the picnics and they're not on the, the, the lawns with their families. So I think it's genuine. I don't think it's market research. I, I think it's his own research. <laughs> if you know what I mean? He, he's decided I have to represent someone those are the people he has to represent. So to get, no. can I just get to that point? So is it inclusive or exclusive? So it's one thing to say quiet Australians and we'll include you. And, no, it's and exclusive. I, or is it That's, exclusive? Because that was a feeling I got. Because uh, yeah, if it's exclusive, uh, yeah. then that, that would be a concern presumably for some people who are not – who are not in that group? Well, he he would say if you, if you yeah. you know you can vote for someone else. Sure. So he represents that. That's his view. Those kind of people. So we we have heard a lot about the quiet Australians, and also he's used the same rhetoric talking about quiet shareholders quite recently when he was talking about the climate protests and how they get in the way of business. If we we've already heard a bit of speculation about who these people are and why Scott Morrison is using this type of rhetoric, um, Carolyn, do you believe that this gives people the feeling that they're actually being heard by government? 
Um, I mean, I guess it's these these terms that are being used, like the quiet Australian silent minority, they come up in lots of particularly environmental divisive conflicts and they're constructions, they're constructions of the public. And everyone has a view of who the affected public is on certain issues. And, and Scott Morrison uses a particular language in social services. They might have used the language, you know, working families. We have these constructions of who the, the public, public policy public is. Um, and I think that can be alienating for people. So if, if, if you're not working or if you don't belong to a fam, you know, a nuclear family, then do you, are you part of the working family kind of idea? Or for example, in this silent majority, you might not be a part of a protest or you might, um, not actually even kind of support some of the, the protest movements, but do, do you associate yourself then with this silent majority? So I, I think the labels, are- Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Um, are way too simplistic for the plural society we live in. And I think it actually probably encourages people then to go and, and, and be more vocal um, and, and yeah, and to, to, I guess, have a feeling that they aren't being, that the mechanisms for listening aren't, aren't effective. So our constituency work is not working. Um, the, the direct connections through social media, who's listening to all that noise. So there's, there's lots of opportunities for expression. But I think the the avenues for real effective listening, or the spaces for real effective listening, don't don't seem to be sort of available at the moment. And that seems to also manifest itself in that people actually try uh, actually completely disengage from the political participation process. So whilst we're seeing people sort of on one side being really fired up during protests, we see people on the other side just completely pulling out. So this year, actually, Australia saw one of the lowest voter turnouts since compulsory voting was implemented and with only 91% of people casting a ballot. And in Melbourne, the youngest seat in the country with a median age of 30 had a turnout of below 80 82%. And a Guardian Essential poll in September also found that only 15% of respondents followed events that are happening here in terms of political events in Canberra. Peter, why are people disengaging? That's half the story. The other half is that there's a group of people, you know, for all I know, it's 15%. For all I know, it's 20% who have never been more engaged than at any time. And this is this is Twitter. This is this is other forms of social media. They talk to people uh, who share their concerns. Never in the past uh, could that happen. Newspapers were available for everyone, and there was a sort of um, 
a censorship, really. Well, what what got there was certain things that would be acceptable to the general public that got in newspapers. So and there are more else. avenues for engagement. Yeah, nowadays. and so you're getting people, and lots of them are, are retirees. They're 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 people with time on their hands, more engaged than ever. While at the same time, you, you, you've got this other thing. And the problem is with the demise of the newspaper, you know, delivered on your doorstep, is that the two aren't talking to each other. So Barack Obama made a speech uh, just in the last few days in relation to activism and pointing out the uh, engagement on Twitter or whatever it might be, that that wasn't really activism. That's my interpretation of him. Uh, maybe I'm doing him a disservice. So that to, can we just follow up on that social media? So so you get on Twitter, you, you send a, a tweet. Have you really engaged or, or, or is that – is According to Barack Obama, maybe not. Or, or do you need to be doing something more than that? Uh, I, don't well, think I, I suppose that. boycotts and so on, yes. which result from Twitter. Yes. yes. But mainly, yeah, you talk to each other and it's really good. Feels good. Okay. Look, I mean, the research shows on social media and, and um, work we've also done here in Australia that social media is a great space um, for relational connections and solidarity in politics. So people can find communities of like-minded people on similar issues and and then organise themselves, maybe even organise offline activities, protests. So it's a great medium for meeting people that share similar views and, and positions on issues. But if we're trying to think about spaces for dialogue and working across difference, then social media, our research plays out that we've done on environmental conflict, shows that that's, it's not, that's not the space. People are in there their silos um, and they're expressing, but it's not a space of deep listening. And so just wanted to add something also to this idea of disengagement. I, th I think people are disengaging from formal politics because they're finding voting and other processes quite um, empty. But I think there's a lot of uptake of both online activism and engagement, but also on the streets. So small scale politics, doing local things, engaging in local schools. This is not just a phenomenon in Australia, it's in around the world in America at the moment. They've never seen so much local participation as a response to their frustration and um, lack of agency at the federal level. And I think that's happening in Australia. Um, yeah, I mean, just to add to that, I think people want to see it, that their actions are making a difference. You know, they want to see impact. So, of course, at the local level, it's much easier to do that because you're very focused. It's in your community. You can have much more direct impact. But one of the problems with, you know, large-scale nationwide consultation and, you know, both Carolyn and I have researched how governments do this on vast levels now. The problem is that people don't see their input going anywhere. And that's one of the problems behind that is because a lot of participation exercises and government exercises collect public opinion, but they don't necessarily put the resource in, into processing it and connecting it to decision making. And even where, and then people therefore don't see that their input, input has had any difference. They don't, so they're being maybe listened to and they're getting to talk, they're getting to express, but those views aren't really being considered when it comes to making decisions. So they don't really have the right to be considered in practice. Is that a sense of powerlessness that some people have and so they're reaching out, whether it's Twitter or whatever it is, or I've got some sense of power if I can join my school board or whatever it is. Is that is is that part of what's going on or or is it more like I want to make a difference so I can I will engage this way? Or it, well, I think the two both? things are the same, aren't yes, they? You yes. want to get engaged and have an influence and have power to make a difference. You don't want to just be turning up and giving input. I mean, one of the problems with public input is that governments organize, you know, regular 
input gathering processes and then it ends and the decision's made and it carries on and then they do another one a few years later and all this data is collected and it's not stored. And it might be that somebody has a really good idea in 2010 that we could act on in 2020, but it's been lost. Um, I think at a local level, when it's more focused, people can see, it's a shorter time frame, they can see the difference. They can see the impact more. I mean, I think there's a tendency for the industry of consultation to make this these into technologies of participation. So there's not much agency for citizens in a lot of these p- formal participatory processes. So grassroots local um, participation is much looser. It's playful. It's enjoyable. It's social. It's all the things that human beings find actually meaningful. And in a world where politics is so negative, everything about democracy feels heavy and dark, these local spaces are spaces of hope. So the emotion shifts and people get both something out of it personally, socially, but also they they feel like they're contributing in a very small way. These are, I'm not saying these small local um, actions always make a big difference, but they certainly make people feel that they're participating in some sort of collective process. Do you, by the way, think that it's uh, grown or or rather jumped up since the election in the middle of the year? That's the, that's the feeling I get from a sample of, of not many people, that people are saying, look, the election didn't go the way I wanted and the government's not listening to us and what's the point? I mean, the, the blessed thing is we do have elections every three years, but in the meantime, what's the point? So I'll do something in my suburb. I can do that. Do you think that – I know I might be wrong. My, 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 my small sample – I mean, I think it's also part of our federal system. I think our local governments and our state governments have have more experience with direct and successful, effective participation and listening. Um, and so people and and to be frank, more of our public policy activities at the in terms of implementation happen at the state and local level. And so people, there's a there's a national conversation that's very federal dominated, but actually there's a lot of activities and participatory activities and work that happens at the local level. And so it, it feeds into the fact that people can do it and it's more productive for them, but also that there's actually, there's more public policy being delivered and served at that level as well. Carolyn and Jennifer were already dragging the conversation into the right direction because we want to look a bit at solutions to these problems. Um, Jennifer and Carolyn, you have conducted research with 51 senior politicians from Australia, the UK, New Zealand, Canada and the US, and you found that political leaders do place high value on inputs from the public when making collective decisions. And that also came out in your statements on the podcast. Carolyn, why is it so crucial that politicians engage with the public beyond the aim of just trying to win votes? I mean, what what we heard in the interviews um, that that we collected was that, contrary to what most people think, is that the politicians actually do want to connect. And uh, what we were interviewing um, executive, we, we, our study was focused on those at, at the executive level. You, you mean ministers? Ministers, yeah, government yes, ministers, government yeah. ministers. Um, and I guess the value for them is is a whole range of things. It's about uh, that we heard things such as keeping our finger on the pulse, about actually hearing um, possibly those voices that they don't normally hear from, but also trying to uh, – double check and and correlate, if you like, the other sources of input they're getting from advisors. So it's a sort of grounding, a way of grounding what they're hearing. 
But but Jennifer may have more about the actual kind of public input that they found particularly valuable. So what they found useful was when it is constructive and when it offers different options um, and that where it takes into account the realities that they as politicians face. So where you end up with um, participation simply where everybody just talks about the problem, that's not really helpful. They already know that. Or if they ask for a very specific solution, we want this, that the politician may not be able to deliver because of party reasons or funding reasons or it conflicts with another government department or there are other issues to consider, that's not helpful. But where it's um, constructive and positive and focused and discusses possibilities – that doesn't, you know, run them into a corner where they then they have to say no. That's useful. The other thing, and then Carolyn would add to this too, is that they liked informal, you know, official but informal behind the scenes conversation that's two-way where they can go, oh, but what about this? And then the public can respond to that. And then they can say, but have you thought about this? Or we've got this issue. And it's very much interactive dialogue. Again, instead of a, I want this from you, politician, and then the politician may have to say no. So it was kind of an informal a formally organised informal space. Yeah, I mean, this gets this is completely contrary to where the design of participatory processes is going, um, into ever increasingly elaborate exotic processes with very structured rules about who participates, how and are, when. Are these, are these citizen assemblies you're talking about? Or? Well, yes. No, and, and, no, I mean, no. they, ha- they sorry. have... Sorry, sorry. The, the processes that I'm yeah. kind of critiquing, yeah. I mean, they have a place. Don't get me wrong, but but I guess there's lessons from this other research that we've been doing, which suggests that politicians, particularly find, decision makers in these uh, um, executive roles, particularly find informal interactions with the public most useful. So we need to design in this kind of informality, this kind of interactive spaces within our consultation work, because otherwise it becomes a kind of a, a, an empty procedure that then, then um, the, the politicians get very, very little value out of and the public ultimately. And they can't use it. So the example that always um, stays in my mind was that of Tony Burke when he was environmental minister and he said he went to a formally organized public meeting and they were protesting what he was proposing and they even put his, you know, his face and his name on a coffin and marched that around. Whereas another one um, on the same issue where there were behind the scenes, people actually got together, they worked constructively, they discussed the options, everybody was prepared to give up something in order to get something and it was just much more mature and positive dialogue. And so it's less attacking the politician and demanding from the politician but instead it is constructive and positive and they're working together in some sense of partnership. And I think, by the way, you never want to back them, sort of what I said earlier, you never want to back them into a corner. So it's no good. Say say there's something that the uh, the coalition or Labor has an absolute position on. It's no good talking to them about that. Find the, you can't. They've, they, 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 they've got a... It's off the table. A, it's done yeah, now. Yeah. So talk to them about future decisions. Yeah, or, or talk to them about an aspect of it uh, where, where they can do something. Or don't do it publicly. So, you know, I know cases where... Uh, ministers have been pressured, pressured in the way of, we're not going to put this in the press. Can we just talk to you about it and see what you can do? And whereas if if there'd been a campaign, you know, the, the minister has done that uh, or the minister isn't doing this and it's outrageous, they would have been backed into a corner. We've talked broadly about improving the relationships between the public and politicians. And Jennifer, in your book, The Ministry of Public Input, you suggest that governments set up a ministry or commission for public input. So 
against the backdrop of those protests and rising levels of disengagement, on the other hand, which is another extreme in a small group, how could this help develop a better relationship between politicians and the public? Well, the problem is that the existing measures of public input and participation are ad hoc or one-off. They're not long-term. So you get very varying standards of practice from very quick and easy consultation that's not really very positive, constructive to high level. So that's the other thing because it's, it's you know, uh, Carolyn called it a, a consultation industry. Well, it's an industry of self-employed people generally rather than a clear professional organization or industry. Um, the other thing is that you'll, you might get random by chance, really good processes that are very closely connected to the decision makers and have impact, but there'll be a one-off and they won't be repeated. Whereas what we want is gold standard public consultation that is a permanent. And that's why I think we need a permanent unit because this is, you know, a lot of public money has been spent on this and a lot of people are putting their effort into it. Let's say this is a fundamental part of government. Let's um, do it properly and also preserve that data instead of repeating things and going back to things. And let's preserve that data because it may be useful for the future. Can I ask, by the way, what do you think about citizen juries, which South Australia has tried? Just a particular issue, nuclear waste, will South Australia take it? And they get together people who are actually chosen because they know nothing about it. Yeah, I mean, politicians said to me I mean, that they're great, but they don't, they're just one small group of people and they're not the average person and thus it doesn't give them an insight into where they're going to go given the realities of the public overall. They're quite Australians. So, but, I mean, Carolyn may have more to say on that because, I mean, it can be a very positive methodology. Yeah, I mean, I think citizens' juries have their place, particularly on deeply or very complex issues that need a lot of deliberation um, and they do bring in other actors such as interest groups and and experts to give testimony to the citizens. So it is a kind of way of layering the public debate. So you have people who have very strong views and expertise coming in to advise a group of a group of um, citizens. And I've done some research looking at how MPs in the New South Wales Parliament um, have have experienced these for their own decision making. So there was a citizens several a couple of citizens juries in the New South Wales Parliament on energy. And this was in 2012, and and the MPs found found that really useful for their own deliberations. But I guess that that it's meeting with all the other sources of input that they get. What's more powerful for those processes is how um, bureaucrats and also politicians realise that citizens are are very capable of deliberating on very complex issues. So it's they remind us all that actually politicians are themselves non experts in most of the issues that they make decisions on. Um, and they need their own processes for deliberation. And so citizens' juries are becoming processes through which decision makers can also hear from a, a, a sort of step back from issues away from the partisan politics. So they have their role, um, but there's a movement in the deliberative democracy kind of design field to try and mix the citizens with the, MP, the, the, the decision makers themselves. So Ireland's been experimenting with this where you get some politicians in with randomly selected citizens. And that that is a very rich combination. And that's what you really need to do is to connect that public input to the politicians yeah. more closely. So that has a lot of promise. So you've already given us so many answers. And as Jennifer was talking a bit about gold standards, uh, I'd like you to give me maybe one gold standard <laughs> here. If you had one piece, one gold standard to give to policymakers to improve the way they engage with citizens, what would it be one sharp piece of advice. Peter, start with you. Mine would be to citizens, not politicians. It would be 
don't be afraid of talking to them. They're actually, uh, I, I work in the building in Parliament House with them, I suppose it'd be uh, 225 of them, and um, they're all nice people. I mean, seriously, when you actually talk to them. So if you get a chance and if you use the sort of methods we were talking about, which is um, to uh, uh, not frighten them but uh, give them an idea, they're in there because they're interested in things. So that would be my tip. Carolyn? So my tip for for policymakers would be to – do your research first. Find out where the public is participating. Where are they going? What conversations are already out there? And then connect and improve um, those spaces with different kind of ways of involving the public. We don't need to always reinvent the wheel. We don't need to have a shiny participatory process all the time. What we need to do is connect up different conversations and public inputs. So that, that mapping exercise is really important. Jennifer? And I would say take all the money that is spent on public engagement and public input across government, which will be millions when you work it all out, put it all under one roof, and then make sure you devote resources to processing the public input, not just collecting it and feeding back. So basically, you're connecting that input to politics every time instead of just every so often. Before I let you go, I have one last question also to each of you. Uh, Looking at the level of the individual, and you briefly touched on this already, Peter, um, beyond the ballot box, what is the most effective step that anyone today can take to influence policy? Pass. (laughs) Carolyn? I actually am a believer of connecting with your local MP. I think we underestimate this and there's – so much that we can do, can be done, um, and MPs know they need to do more to in their constituency work. So, in some very effective electorates, there's very close relationships with the broader community and the MP serving them. Jennifer? I would say be positive and focus on proposing ideas and solutions. You know, talking about what you could do, what politicians could do, rather than just complaining about the problem. Thank you so much for this great discussion, Peter, Carolyn and Jennifer. It was great to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carolyn, Peter and Jennifer, for this great and insightful discussion, listeners. Of course, we want your thoughts on the discussion. Please jump on to Facebook and reach out to us. We are Policy Forum Pod there and on Twitter where we are at Apps Policy Forum. Or, of course, you can also reach us via email, podcast at policyforum.net. And if you want to learn more about how to improve the communication between government and citizens, essentially what we talked about on this podcast, or want to drive change in the field yourself, you might want to have a look at Crawford's Master of Policy Communication. In this program, you will learn how to improve policy communication and dive deeper into participatory policymaking. You can find out all the information at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, let's have a look at your questions and comments. And I'd like to start the discussion with a comment on a podcast that was last week's absolutely fabulous podcast, Illicit Drug Policy More Harm Than Good, with David Caldecott, Tracy Fenwick, and Desmond Madison. I think probably hands down one of my favorite podcasts so far. On this episode, our panel discuss why Australia needs to urgently reform its illicit drug policies and share their thoughts on what Australia could learn from other countries which have. And Vanessa Brown wrote on our Facebook podcast group, 
great episode. I particularly like the line about sacrifices on the altar of meaningless ideological rhetoric could be applied to many situations. So I think what um, Vanessa is referring to here is uh, the deaths of people that are caused by uh, more restrictive and um, more hardline drug policies instead of harm minimization. Yeah, policies. so this idea of pill testing or not pill testing. So obviously when it talking about people's lives, you hopefully don't put ideology <laughs> in the forefront. Uh, of course, people have different values and preferences. I fully accept that. But it's uh, talking about people's lives and then you want to make sure that you take the best evidence that's available and apply that to to be able to save people's lives. That seems to me, and that's not just terms and drug policy, it comes into a whole range of different policies, especially when it comes to uh, uh, mortality, people's lives. It's, it seems to me that's pretty darn important. So let's, let's hopefully we'll put ideology to one side. And rely on evidence. Correct, yes. Yes. Thank you very much, Vanessa, for your comment and also anyone else who has commented. Please keep sending us your comments and questions and ideas you can reach us on Facebook, Policy Forum Pod, on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. And of course, you can also email us podcast at policyforum.net. And at this stage in the podcast, we of course also want to welcome our new fantastic members to the podcast group. And as always, I preface this by apologizing if I butcher any of your names. So please join me in saying hi to Fyodor Snegovsky. Joachim Sierra, Claire Francis, and David Pantalone. We're very excited to have you on board. And if you like today's episode, you might want to hit subscribe. You can find Policy Forum Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Today's episode has been produced and written by me, Julia Ahrens, with executive production by Martin Pierce and editing by Branko Svetovic. And we'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod, of course, next week. But until then, for me, Julia, cheerio. Goodbye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.